So I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Uh, the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. After a year of kickstand jokes, we can prove that not everything gets better with age. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so we're really happy that you're all here. Um, way more people than we thought ever listened to the show at all. Like, just total. So to see this many people in Portland coming out for it is, is pretty awesome. So thank you all for coming. We really appreciate it. Right on. Thanks, guys. Um, I got a couple shout outs. Um, my buddy Colin Evans just got done with a, uh, a ride... From they basically went all the way down uh, South America from it was called Expedition 65 because it was 65 degrees of latitude in 65 days and they just got done with it I think last week uh, really gnarly uh, he was with a bunch of people from something called the Rawhide uh, it's a, a guy named I believe it's Jim Hyde that puts uh, puts on all kinds of schools and or trips. And they kind of got together and said, hey, we want to do this wild ride from <clears throat> very far up in South America all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, which is pretty trippy. So good on him for having just gotten done with that and uh, making it safe, which is amazing. It was a lot of people and uh, so many things could have happened. So it was really cool. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to get a, a shout out to a guy named Kurt Miller, who I worked with at Ducati North America. He recently left there to go to uh, uh, Red Bull, and he's a, a, a senior financial analyst at Red Bull now, which is really cool. Uh, another gentleman, a friend of mine named Jared English, uh, just left Ducati North America, and he's now um, working for KTM, and I'd, he was sales support at Ducati North, uh, North America, so I think he's probably doing something very similar at KTM, so congratulations to him. Uh, <clears throat> another friend of mine, Fabian Viteri, uh, he was uh, uh, an accessories manager at, at, at Ducati North America. He is now gone to Tesla, and he's uh, uh, in in the Tesla's accessories department. Is, uh, that's somewhere in the Bay Area, so that's rad. Good on him. And then also Kurt Von Onen, uh, who was uh, I worked very closely with at Ducati North America as a he was our trainer. So now he is doing all training and publication uh, at uh, Suzuki. Uh, down in Brea. So good on all those people uh, for uh, uh, doing what they're doing and, and uh, uh, managing to move through the through the motorcycle industry in a positive way. So there's that. You got like notes and everything. Yeah, right. This is by far the most organized we've ever been for a show. Like just leaps and bounds ahead of it. I don't have any shout outs. Like, thanks, mom. You know, like... <laughs> Definitely, definitely wouldn't be able to do it without her. Well, thanks for Moto Corsa for providing yeah, this place for sure. This is rad. Everybody that helped uh, set it up for us and whatnot, uh, we, we uh, much appreciate it. Definitely, definitely. Jump into it. Yep. So we, 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 we normally don't plan our shows. It's usually like, I guess, not. What like, happened this week? Yeah. Hey, what'd you do this week? Because I don't really, I see you like once a week. Yep. And so we sit down and we just kind of BS about motorcycles. Um, this week we wanted to get a little bit more organized because we don't want to look like a bunch of buffoons, which is to your benefit, trust me. Um, but we did want to talk a little bit about the MotoGP test of Valencia. Yeah. We had some racy stuff to talk about, some technical stuff, and then we wanted to open it up to your, your guys' questions since, you know, you're, you're here and we're here. So yeah, um, I have a think on what you might want to, want to ask later on in the show. Yeah. We can field anything, life, universe, motorcycles, whatever. Um, so Quentin, looking at the MotoGP test in Valencia, what what struck you as being the the big headlines or the big points? Uh, for me, not being a very big fan of Jorge Lorenzo, I was really stoked at how good he looked on that bike on the on the Ducati. Surprised me very much, and I was like, ah, like I like that. I like those ninety nine on the bike, and I like the way the the whole 
the whole idea that he is now on a different bike. He's been on Yamaha for what, nine, eight or nine years yeah, at this stage. So yeah. long enough to where you just get tired of the same people in the same getups. So um, I like seeing it mixed up and for him to be pretty quick right off the bat, I was stoked on for sure. Did you see the photo on A&R that Scott Jones took where the, the nine on the 99 is tearing off? No, I didn't. Oh yeah. Good shot. I think, you know, they just put like little stickers on them. Somebody from Moto Corsa posted up the picture with the heat waves coming off the bike. And, you know, he's he's down and in, in it and the bike's a little bit crossed up and you could tell he's on it, which is really cool, too. So, again, not a huge fan of the guy. But now if you, you almost kind of have to be because he's on the Ducati. So I'd like to see it. I'd like to see him be able to mix it up. For sure. you're, you're saying as like a Ducati fan by your. Yeah, totally. Right. Man. It trumps the. Oh, I can't say that. <laughs> they converted you. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of kind of converted me. Right. <laughs> I can't wait to see the the races. You're you're like internal. Oh, I can't handle it. Right. <laughs> if he's winning, I'm like, oh, but he shouldn't. Yeah, right. Especially if he beats Valentino. Yeah. That's how are you going to deal with that? I'm not going to deal with it well. Yeah. No, not at all. Uh, winglets, though. So they're on, the, all these bikes are still with winglets. Well, for the test. Yeah. I and mean, that's the thing is, I mean, it's it's scientific method, right? You 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 want to limit your variables when you're testing. And so for Jorge, they were very much just like, hey, we, we know what this bike is like with winglets. We know what this package is. We're going to test our changes for 2017, but let's limit how many changes we're going to deal with. And he did go out with the winglet winglet less bike Oof, glad that's not gonna have to go on for much longer but it was you know very much a get to know you kind of thing for him getting out there let's get some data let's find a good base setup that's probably the biggest thing they're working on for him to be truthful is yeah, a base sure. setup for the the gp17 going forward while davi was left to do the uh, the the carrying of the testing load so, and he's good at testing right well i think that's why they kept him along and that's kind of like that was kind of like the impetus for Ducati picking Davizioso over Iannone. Like, Iannone's fast. He's going to get you some podiums. He may win you some races. He's going to crash a lot, too, in the process. But maybe take out his teammate. Maybe take out a teammate or two, but that's just good, good, solid fun. But Davi, he's a worker. And he, when you talk to him, especially when you talk to him compared to Iannone, he's switched on. Like, he's, he's an intelligent human being. He understands what's going on with the bikes. And more importantly, he can relate what's happening to the bike back to the mechanics and back to the technicians. And that has a lot of value. Sure. So then you have two people developing a bike rather than just one guy developing the bike and the other guy going fast. But you could argue that, you know, and he's probably pretty good at it because he was up there enough to where he was giving fairly good feedback. It's just that once he gets in there, he goes to maniac Joe mode and right. I think there's a lot going on with you know and I. I don't know how much I want to, I don't know how like crappy I want to be, but he's a, he's a bro. Let's just be honest. He's an <laughs> Italian bro. Did you see the video of him? It was like, I don't know, two, three months ago. He like, he locked his keys inside his, I think it was a, a Porsche, yeah. the Porsche SUVs. And he's like, oh no. So he just breaks the window to, to get into it. And it's just like, you're just such a bro sometimes. And he films it all on Instagram and puts it up for him to see. And you're just like, yeah, oh, you're such a meathead sometimes. Just such a talented rider, but such a meathead sometimes. Sure. Do you think, think he'll temp be tempered with age or do you think he's just, that's his inherent? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think it'll get tempered with, with age. It'll, how much will it get? tempered is the real question yeah sure so um but you know suzuki picked him up and they're hoping to to make some steps with him i think they were really caught off guard by maverick switching to yamaha they had really thought that they were gonna have him for for several years if not you know like a decade of time and and develop him kind of like they did with kevin schwantz like have the two names be synonymous with each other and i think he named his dog suzuki i didn't know that did he? I, really? I think i read that i'm pretty sure 
Did you read that on the internet? I don't did. believe everything you read on I the internet. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. But that, that was like somebody made mention of it and said that that was of note that he was that into it. Well, sorry. He was into it. And they were and they were like a cohesive unit. They were they were a team, you know, in every sense of the word. So, you know, him leaving, obviously, like, you know, they wish him the best. But I think there's a little bit they're like, you know, you really screwed up our plan here. Like we really that was that was the, the idea. I was like, you're going to be here. We're going to develop this bike around you. We're going to make you a three-time world champion maybe more and now the poor dog is gonna have to answer to yamaha yeah right dog screwed right he can't do it hope they just keep going mm. <laughs> it's like a bad breakup like who gets the dog <laughs> um so yeah i mean it for me it was really interesting to see how quick he was on the yamaha no oh, he was a beast it was it was amazing but i, I you can't be that surprised because he was really good on a bike that was a, a, a little bit inferior Right. It wasn't, it was getting there. It was pretty good, but it was yeah. definitely inferior toward, and, and at the end of the season, it was getting better, but he was riding the crap out of it. So then he gets on the most developed, nearly perfect machine ever. And it's, he's going to be able to go hog wild. And he did. I don't know. I've always felt like Maverick was overrated, not like overrated in the sense that he's not a good rider. He's definitely a much, very much of a talent, but I didn't really believe it until Valencia this year or well, maybe earlier when he, when he won. I didn't really believe that, like, oh, he could be the fifth alien guy. And you're like, oh, really? Like, he seems good, but I don't, I don't know if I bought it. Had you not paid attention to him when he was in the in the lower classes? I did, but I just I just didn't see it. Like Marquez, it was easy to see. It was so easy to see the talent that Marquez was, and people were pegging him as being the next big thing. You know, when he was 15 years old, and, you know, people that know a lot more than I do, and you know. It's kind of like one of the more obvious things. You're like, yeah, you look at him, like, yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty quick. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I expect it from him. But Maverick, like, I think at least for me, the Bass season or two, I think there, in my mind, there was a lot of people like him. There's like, you know, if you put him on factory equipment, instant podium contention. He's a fast guy. I just didn't see that something special until until recently. So that that definitely stuck on my mind. The fact that he was able to be instantly quicker on that bike. Did you see the video where, you know, of course he's, go, he's sliding around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And then they cut to uh, stoner and Lorenzo. Yeah. And yeah. The, the look of, oh, man. They're, they're having a little, yeah. Yeah. I mean, stoner's like, ah, yeah, you're going to have to deal look with this guy. Yeah. Enjoy that. I'm going to go uh, fishing. <laughs> but it's yeah. cool. It's cool to see Casey back in the paddock. I really like seeing that. Maybe you don't feel as well. Yeah, you're a hater. Yeah, no fucks given. Yeah, I'm stoked to see him. I think it's great to see him back in the paddock and see him rider coaching for... Is for that what he's Ducati doing? Team. Well, I don't know what the, the formal arrangement is. He's definitely... He was in Ducati gear, yeah? He's Yeah, he's like he's a Ducati employee. He, I mean, he's an official Ducati test rider. Yeah. Um, But I don't know quite what his relationship was or is with Andrea and Jorge in terms of like formal arrangements. Because a lot of the riders will have like a rider coach or they'll have someone that spots for them on the track. Um, like Eugene Laverty, his brothers go out and spot for him. Uh, you'll see Randy Mamola in the in the pits with um, Bradley Smith, and I don't hmm. know if he still does it with Cal Crutchlow, but he used to do it with Cal Crutchlow. So that's kind of like where X racers go for pasture, kind of thing, get put out of pasture. Um, and so it's cool to see him in the Ducati pit again. I don't know if there's like a formal thing, like Hey Jorge, you know you're going to pay me ten grand every race, and I'm going to go yeah, sure. tell you what to do, or if it's a Ducati paycheck, or if it's just. He's just, I could totally just see him being like, Hey, I'm an enthusiast. I like racing. Yeah. I can't help but tell you what I think. I mean, that's, if there's one thing you can say about Casey Stoner, he never held back what he thought. Yeah. Um, so it does lend himself very well into that testing role. But, you know, it's definitely, 
least from the impressions I've gotten, a team effort inside that garage now. And and, and Casey's a part of that team effort with him going out to the track and Michele Piro doing his work as well. And they're all just trying to make a bike that Jorge can win on. I mean, that's, um, you know, kind of reminds me of like Kobe Bryant years at the Lakers. It's just all built around one guy. That's a sorry. That was a stick. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. I have no idea what you're talking about. Right? Your knowledge of other sports just kills me sometimes. Yeah, there's so many things that we can't talk about. I don't follow baseball at all, so Kobe is not somebody that I would (laughs) be into. Right? Except for something about Colorado and him. There wasn't there a case, wasn't he? One of those that had a horrible thing. Yeah, and no one talks about it. No, no, nobody does. Isn't that funny? It's really weird. All right, so anywho, um, (laughs) I'm just gonna avoid that rabbit hole as hard as I can. Live show, Quentin. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing I read the other day is there's a, a gentleman named Mark Elder that was a uh, he's a main chassis technician for Ducati. He's been oh for yeah I know you're talking many about. many years and he's one of the few Americans that's in the paddock and that's a really cool thing and a few of one of the few Americans that's been in the Italian realm for a long time. It's very difficult to get into that. So he is going to work for uh, uh, Valentino Rossi, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Go from that Ducati, totally ensconced in Ducati for many, many years. And now he's going to go work for Rossi, which I think is very interesting. Well, that goes both ways, too. Like, it's so hard to get into, like, the, the Ducati clique, as it were. But it's also to get into Rossi's little circle. Sure. That's hard, too. So he must have made it, like, when Rossi was at Ducati, you know, made a friend and, made and an got into it. But yeah. that's very cool for him, because if he... Can you imagine having had a storied career? He started off, he was a, he was an, I, I believe an MMI grad that ended up at a Harley shop, was working for the Bostroms when the Bostroms were racing the Harley 883 series. This is, this is early mid nineties. So then went from, I think it was Bartels Harley working with Bostrom, followed Bostrom to Ducati when Bostrom, uh, um, Ben Bostrom went to Ducati and then clicked his way up through World Superbike and all that. That's, it's like a dreamscape story for any, uh, anybody that's a, wants to be a mechanic or work for a race team. So having seen it over the years and thought, God, that's the dude, right? That's really cool. Now he works for Valentino Rossi. What a, what a trip. That's a cool thing. It's a, I mean, I can't even imagine how hard it is just to break into that. I saw, uh, a job posting the other day for, um, I don't know if it was a chassis mechanic or a technician, data technician for the ASPAR team, but it's really r- rare that you see such a formal kind of invitation to come work for us because it seems like something that's very much They a, pull from within or they have our... Yeah, you yeah. kind of network your way around. Like, how did you get started at Graves? How did, how did you make your introduction or make your break into that? Like, did you just like watch Chuck Graves' car one day and be like, no. hey, Chuck, what's going on? That's a good question. I don't remember... Oh, it was through, we, I was racing two strokes and one of the friends that I raced with mini bikes, like YSR fifties at go-kart tracks. Um, he was racing one twenty fives and knew me from one twenty five. So we had raced for years and he was like, Hey, you should come and interview. So I interviewed and, uh, because I had race experience, uh, and was a technician at the same time. That's how I got in. What's, what's that interview like? Is it just like a, a yard sale of a bike on the floor and you have to build it? Or no, no. They ask that, you about like, like that was Motosis. Name your name your three strengths no, and that, one weakness. That was Motosis. Motosis with his yard sale for really? sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, that. So with, with that, it was just they wanted to make sure that I had gone through kind of the really Chuck Graves wants to know that you've gone through rough and tumble, um, school of hard knocks, race out of a van 
style racing before you just been given like a, a, a gilded lily of a motorcycle and, and you've just been given everything and you don't have to worry about it and you've had all the money all the time. He didn't, he wants somebody that gets in there and get, has had to get dirty. And for me, it was like, yeah, Dodge Tradesman 200, RS125, right? So that, that helped get me into there. And then having a crew chief that was at the time that interviewed me as well, um, a guy named James Siddall, was really cool, um, a really good person, and that's how I got in there. But the Sis thing was working interview. I, I rode up and rode to Sis here from LA on my SD2. Rode up here and interviewed, and I was like, I don't know about this. Like it was sketchy. Like I'm not really sure about this. And then I was like, I kind of need more. And they were like, Well, if you want more, we've got this test at Miller coming up, and it ended up being just a travesty i'm not gonna lie it just the, the everything was horrible the engines were blowing up and it was crashing and jeremy mcwilliams was, oil was everywhere and it was really grotesque and i was like i can have an effect so that that was a good thing that was a working interview where it was like i had to get in with them at three in the morning trying to rebuild a bizarro twin crank three cam engine uh in in the pits at miller to, to make a test so that they could get the funding they were they were in front of at the time it was uh it was <laughs> sticking ball sports the 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 main dude that is the chicago bulls jordan michael jordan right yeah so right that that was he was there and he had flown in with a couple of other high level people and that <laughs> right <laughs> He was a he was a big contributor at the time. I would just love I would just love it if you like actually met him. Be like, so Michael, what do you what do you do? <laughs> You're really tall. Like, do you have a hard time booking you know tickets on planes? <laughs> yeah, apparently a really cool guy though, right? I don't never met him. Yeah, sure. I mean if he's into motorcycles. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. right on. That was an interesting thing back in the day when he started coming to Paddock and his group was coming. This was in about two thousand three. Um, all of a sudden the bikes are showing up with Jordan symbols on them. And, you know, at the time I'd grown up in the early nineties when you were not cool if you didn't have a set of Air Jordan shoes. So all of a sudden there's this thing in the paddock. It was a very strange to see, to see it in motorcycling because it didn't make much sense. Right? You weren't cool in the paddock unless you had Air Jordans. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> that was its own, that was its own thing. Actually at the time you weren't cool in the paddock unless you knew the guys from milfhunter.com. <laughs> Not kidding you. There was a group of them and they had blue camo, like blue, gray, black style camo bikes. And it was like the cool guys in the paddock. It was horrible. I don't even want to admit that I know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, but it was a thing. The motorcycle brings out, motorcycle industry brings out all sorts of people. It brings out a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> like Johnny Rock Page. Right. And raging cases of herpes. Right. <laughs> Or his peas, whatever, right? This is our last live podcast, by the way. <laughs> All right, so from from that to where the heck we were on that, that was a good rabbit so hole. So you want to talk about the Valencia test? <laughs> Speaking of tests, <laughs> just pee in this cup and let's see what happens. Um, I think overall the, the test went fine. There was nothing that came out of it that was anything other than the, the people that made the switches looked like they were comfortable on the bikes. Iannone was fast enough. Iannone was fast, yeah. Um, I mean, he's going he's gonna to be good on that Suzuki. Like, I, I you know, I'm, I'm kind of a hater, but he's going to be fast. You're going to have to count him, you know, on especially on his good days sure. as, a, as a race contender, as a race winner. 
Um, he's definitely capable of winning a podium any day of the week. I never paid attention to Crutchlow because, you know, he came on strong oh, at the end of the season. How was he in the test? I didn't even see his result. He did well. He, you know, it's hard when you're on the, the, the satellite teams, although Honda's been giving him a fair bit of support this season, and it, it definitely paid off in spades. Um, but when you're, like, on the satellite teams, you don't have a ton of tar- uh, parts to test. Yeah. So you might get stuck doing some tire testing or you might kind of be doing some of the donkey work for the um, the factory teams. So you can't really but, all the yeah. time judge them on their lap times in that yeah. case. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's more just for them. It's just development. They're going to probably try some new uh, electronic settings, some new chassis settings, see if they can learn something from it. But it's I wouldn't say it's time wasted, but it's definitely not as valuable of time as it is to the factory efforts. Do but. you think he's going to be okay or have the same momentum going into 17? Or do you think he's just going to continue crash lowing himself everywhere? I don't know. You know, I think if you'd asked me halfway through the season, I probably would have been really poopy about it. But, you know, he really, again, another rider that I didn't really give a lot of credit to um, at the beginning of the season who really impressed me towards the end of the season. I mean, sure. it's no joke. He won two races. Is Danny Pedrosa still racing? Yeah. Is he? How didn't you see his name? Like, like I don't even pay attention to it. I was like, that's funny that he's like, did somebody take his puppet strings? He's, he's, he's easy to miss because he's, he's just so low. So you just don't. Oh, see that's him. right. It's he's like, just right over there. You gotta look like. Oh, All right. Oh, how did he there do? There you are, Danny. How did he do? Was he okay? He's fine. All right. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Perennial second place. All right. I don't think Danny's at 100 percent right now. No, you think he's broken? Yeah. Oh well, yeah, for sure. I mean, he's still shaking off his crashes and stuff. So. All right. Um, I think I think the offseason will do him well, but you know, like you get poopy about Danny sometimes. That kid's fast. No, I know. It's no joke. It was tough when you're you're really deep into it, and whenever that was when he crashed out Nikki, it was just a very visceral thing for a lot of when people. When was that? What was it? 2006, like a okay, long you time ago. Get the fuck over it. I know. I'm I'm with you. And so <laughs> yeah. over the years, I kind of finally am just tempered by it. like, okay, I like the little guy. Like you, like you talked you talked to Nikki about it, and he goes, "You guys need to get the fuck over it." Yeah. He's he's a gentleman, doesn't use the curse words, but he's like, "I've moved on. You need to move on." Yeah, sure. So with that said, fair enough. Yeah. It's just he's yeah, whatever. He's a good guy. Like like yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't know these people that well, but I do get to talk to him. I get to spend a little bit of time with them, and like, I think Danny and I could be friends. Like, we just hang out, just be bros. Really? Yeah. But he's not a bro. I'll put him in my pocket. We just do, like, kangaroo style. <laughs> just, like, go do stuff. Nature's pocket? But he's into sailing. You know, we're both into sailing. So, like... He's into sailing? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. He's, I like, he's... super waspy. He's, like, the like the quintessential uh, Spanish wasp. Is that possible? <laughs> you don't remember that thing where he got in trouble for cheating on his, like, boating license? His captain's test? Or no. Was? Oh, this is like four or five years ago. He cheated on a boat? Well, I guess that's the thing. Like, you have to you have to get certified to be a captain of a certain size ship. And, you know, Danny's probably got more FU money than you and I will ever see. Uh-huh. So he's probably got a like, cute little little boat. <laughs> that's what I'm imagining. His little I mean, boat. How, how big can it be? But anyways, it required him to get a license. And I guess one of the things is, like, it's just accepted that if you have a certain amount of wealth, you just hire someone to take the test for you. Uh, and every now and then, it's probably one of those things too, like in Spain where like people, people know when it's like, it says like, Oh yeah, I'm Danny Pedrosa and you know, I'm here to take the test. And it's like a six foot tall, yeah, like sure. Amazonian woman. And they're like, mm, really Danny? Okay. But, um, yeah, he ended up getting caught cheating and he got fined and he had to go do this thing. And it was like, it was kind of like a joke because this was one of those things like, I think the, the scuttlebutt in the paddock was he just got really bad advice. Like, he's just like, I sure. bought a boat. I want to be able to take my boat out. Someone told him this is how it's done. So he's like, fine, let's get it done. And it ended up being like a headline for a week. But 
Uh, fun story. All right. No, I don't. I didn't pay enough attention to that one. Probably. Yeah, you're too busy hating. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. But that's good hate fodder. Like you got busted. <laughs> of all the things. For boats, right? right? <laughs> so did have you talked with him about sailing? No. Did, no oh, okay. No. Would you next time that could you please? Yeah, I, I keep forgetting that he's kind of into it. Yeah. You don't think it would be a tacky question? No. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think it'd be a tacky question. <laughs> okay, right. I like the cut of your jib. I bet you do. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to move to racetracks or do we need time? Whatever, about dude. Yeah. Just whatever you want to do. <laughs> All right. So we got a question from uh, somebody in Texas. I can't, I'm, I apologize. I'm not going to be able to remember the name. So he uh, was discussing Texas World Speedway, which is in my hometown. And it's a large, it was built in the late 70s as a trioval. It's a sister track to like Michigan, some huge, really large. Uh, Wait, how is it a sister track? Is this like sister cities? Or yeah, like right. Portland's Simil like a sister similar city size, this weird trioval shape. And it was like, okay, these tracks are really similar in, in shape. Not not quite that's Daytona, the, but almost. That's right? the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, sure. So uh, it was built then, but then they didn't put in a, um, uh, a parking lot. And anytime it rains, I mean, it's central Texas clay. It turns into a quagmire. It's horrible. So they only ran a few um, NASCAR races there and then scuttled it. But then it's been sitting there. And in, uh, that when I grew up uh, about seven to ten miles away, I would my parents and I would hear the sound of the, the any vehicle. And it would be Saturday morning, and they'd take me out there. And that's one of the reasons I am what I am, because we would go out there and watch. Well, that, well be... that, that's how it is. Yeah, uh -huh. that, that, That's what's responsible for this. Uh -huh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? Not, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, motorcycles, SCCA cars, stuff like that. Right? Okay. So gearhead. And my parents are gearheads, um, you know, a botanist hippie gearheads, but gearheads nonetheless. So we'd go out there and check it out, and that's that was the thing. It's a pretty cool track, and they had an infield race course, and then it, it actually exits the 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 oval and does like a yeah, omega seen. it's a pretty bizarre setup i think um pocono some, does something like that i don't uh, know auto speedway auto speedway <coughs> goes up onto the bank it's a way line. to do it yeah. with where you have lots of infrastructure inside but then you can take it out because they had the property and it's yeah. texas and that anyway so that was built on a big sinkhole and there's been years of issues with the 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 facility kind of sinking or having problems and it's on the way to houston so it's right in the commuter potential of property so for years there's been this fight of are they gonna so it, that it, land's becoming more, more yeah it makes no sense to have okay. a racetrack there so this person was asking well what what is what makes it worth having a racetrack and i you know i don't really it, it would take a lot of looking at what takes racetracks to make money what takes race organizations what is it because we're talking about a huge span of land dedicated to something that you can only use X amount of time right. a year. So I thought that was a worthy question for us to, to discuss because we, we know a lot of tracks, a Laguna Seca being a, a great example yeah. of one, that yeah. over the course of years are kind of like, ah, that's valuable property what, and it makes sound and there's problems that come with it. I can't even, I can't even fathom how much the property for Laguna Seca is worth now. I mean, it's a, it's a regional park and everything, so it's kind of set aside, but if it wasn't, I mean, million dollar homes would, would would gladly be built there. Sure, especially with that lake view. But it, it's interesting. It's interesting you bring that up because it's there are a lot of racetracks like that that have had metropolitan areas growing up. I mean, we're here in Portland. Yeah, and it's a fight. It's it's 
it's probably just a matter of time before PR goes away. I mean, I don't know if that's in like a decade or in like 50 years or what have you, but I mean, this city's growing. I'm a transplant from California. There's more of us coming, guys. I got bad news for you. Um, where are we going? Where are we going to move? And it's just, it's just, it's pressure. And it's as the cost per acre goes up, then I think people start making different priorities. Well, and it's a city park. So that's an right. interesting aspect to it. And they seem to be able to kind of kick the can along and keep it there. But once it lost the um, the IndyCar race, there was always that, mm, that was a big draw. And now there's really not a lot of big things that go on there. Well, that's the other part of it. That's, <clears throat> that's the business side of it, right? Like it costs a lot of money to, to build a racetrack. It costs a lot of money to maintain it. Uh, I know that's one of the reasons like um, Indianapolis Motor Speedway doesn't do track days is because anytime they turn the lights on there, it's... It's over 100 people that have to be on site to keep it secure and, and yeah, do it's the too whole, big. It's too much. Thing. Sure. Um, and we look at how big that place is. It's just it's gargantuan. There's a, I think there's an 18 hole golf course, but nine holes of it are with inside the oval. It's <laughs> no, just, it's I just didn't know that. I never yeah. even saw that. Yeah, yeah, because P2 parking for MotoGP, like, like P1, P2. <laughs> yeah, sure. P2 is at the golf course on the other end. Huh. You're screwed if you get P2 parking. Huh. You're just up the creek. Um, learn that the hard way. But, you know, there, there is that element of you have this this giant thing that you've invested money in and you only make money when it's open. And if you lose like a major racing series, that's going to bring people through the gate because that's how most of these these tracks are making their money is on the gate attendance. They're not making anything on the sanctioning fees. Absolutely. Not. They're probably losing money, if anything, on the sanctioning fees um, to, to, to host something. Then they have to spend the marketing budget. And then, they're you know, even what comes through the gate might get go uh taken by someone like dorna or uh, moto america or whoever it is um so then you're like you're kind of making your money on like concessions that's tough well that's and, a tough and thing. but that shows especially like say coda and in texas so uh, with with this gentleman asking about texas World speedway it's like well you know an hour and a half away is the best track in the united states right now probably uh it, definitely i mean you have to put it on the list somewhere sure uh, and the infrastructure is there and they hold concerts there and they built it to do more than just the racing. Right. So that's good. Well, that's the thing too. Like that's, that's the smart part where you build it to be more than just a racetrack so they can host events and you'll see like, uh, Donington park was trying to make it a kind of like, a a, a development center for, for motorcycle and car related businesses. Um, Motorland Aragon has the same kind of deal where they're kind of doing yeah, like sure. a business development element of it where like, Hey, let's get a, a chassis company and they can be based here and they can use the racetrack on their free time. And I think they wanted to do that at Miller Motorsports Park, which is not too far from here relative uh, sure. and, and Utah. And it's just not too many people want to live in Tuella, Utah, nor in Salt Lake City, or it's just not enough of a center for a lot of people to go to. I don't think, yeah, I don't think, I don't think Salt Lake City is a big enough draw for that. Yeah. Um, and that's been the problem with getting people to go there to watch the races, right? Especially on Sundays, straight up. That was always an issue. For, for, for Miller? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole kind of sociological, cultural issue that just comes part and parcel with that area. Sure. Um, I don't think it's the same for for other places, but like um, like Sears Point's a great example for, for up in, or down in California, my, one of my home tracks, where, you know, they've gone through the different corporate sponsorship kind of things. It was Infineon for a while, and now I think it's Sonoma Raceway, and... Um, you know, they, sometimes they, they used to host AMA racing and I think yeah. now Moto America is going to come back to them, but there was a period where they didn't. And so, you know, that changes fundamentally, fundamentally the, the, the purse, you know, what they can put back into facility and, and how it can grow. And, you know, I think if they 
didn't do as good of a job bringing series back into the track that might've gone to the wayside. And we're kind of seeing everything going on with Laguna Seca is kind of like the proof of that where, you know, that's a facility that needs millions of dollars put into it. Like it's almost sad that like Laguna Seca is our, one of our premier tracks. And that's not to say anything about the racetrack itself. It's a fantastic race course. It's, it's fun to ride. The noise restrictions are really difficult and that's part of the problem. But the other part of the problem is it's, it's the bottom of a lake and they have a lot of earth that needs to be moved and they need to make a lot of improvements. Bikes have gotten a lot faster in the last few decades than they used to be. And we're starting to see safety concerns and there's just, you know, the media center is literally a tent. It's a temporary building. There's not any real facilities. The bathrooms are all porta potties. I don't think there's a single bathroom that's a permanent fixture except for maybe the, the ones up by the, uh, yeah. the, the, the camping ground. So, you know, when you sit there and you're like, you know, why isn't this the, a world level track? And it's like, well, the track is, the facility isn't, and the money required to go into it is, is sizable. And, you know, Laguna Seca obviously has its own little problems being kind of this private slash part public of, Part entity. of Fort Ord, right? Isn't it on Fort Ord or um, no? I don't think so. No. I, maybe at one point it was. Yeah, sure. Um, it's a complicated area. It's 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 a it's a quagmire. Like and you, another like another track that's an interesting example is Willow Springs. It's north of Los Angeles in the desert, and it was built in the fifties, right? Yeah. Middle of nowhere, <laughs> Rosamond, California. Well, it was built in the fifties, and it was one of the only places, or one of the good places, to go uh, in SoCal, which of course has always had a, a big population and a lot of you know hot rodding, Murak Dry Lake, whatever. <clears throat> There's a culture there for sure. Um, I have a friend that used to circulate it when it was oiled rock or oiled, you know, just basically oil, not even asphalt or concrete or anything like that, which is a trip. Um, eventually, and I don't know what year they did it, but the gentleman that owns it or owned it, uh, passed away. His name is Bill Huth. He made it a historic site. He registered it as a historic site so nobody can touch it. At all, right. which is an amazing thing. And I was wondering if PIR could try and do the same thing. Now, that way it would lock it down as, okay, there's been there's history here more than just the Vanport flood or whatever it is. Yeah, but even that brings <clears throat> in a lot of red tape. Like that's, you know, we see that with other like more, let's say like houses or buildings that get classified as historical landmarks. And it's, it creates a problem of its of itself. Like maybe that, yeah, some developers not going to come in and put up a bunch of condominiums, but it's also then going to limit like, like if you wanted to change the layout of the track, I'm sure that's going to be that's a city hall meeting probably or, or, sure. or, or a dozen of them probably. Yeah, sure. Um, so and that's yeah. a problem with PIR. That's for sure a problem when they're, when the talks about improvement of the track or changing it at all, then it turns into red tape, a right. lot of red tape. Well, and for them too, it's, it's, it's money. Where's the money going to come from? Because it's not a racetrack that has a big marquee event that could generate revenue. It's being supported by, uh, probably track day fees really. Yeah. Um, and you know, how many of those, I mean, it's not like we have, 50 weeks of perpetual sunshine no, like Southern California does. I've, I think I've paid 10 bucks to go uh, drive around it with Christmas lights before, right? So they do that. They do a few other things. Bicycle racing is pretty serious. Uh, the drag racing, they use a lot. Um, yeah. I've raced mountain bikes there in the middle of the summer. There's a lot of different things that you, we don't pay attention to because we're mostly there for uh, for road racing motorcycles, but they use it, whether it be the, the skid pad, the autocrosses, it would be interesting to see how they lay it out and, and how much it is used relative to, to what it does. Sure. So to answer this person's question, specifically Texas Speedway, there's not much you can do. There's, there, that is going to be the, from College Station to Houston is an hour and a half. 
life has turned into commuter life for a lot of people, especially if you don't want to live in a cesspool like Houston. So then you um, have to commute. And, and a lot of the stuff that for Houston is growing to the northwest. And it makes sense that that property would be surrounded by housing or surrounded by people that are going to be pissed off at the sound. Right. So if I could hear it clearly from seven to 10 miles away, it wasn't annoying. It was awesome. But that's us. We were gearheads. Nah, most people are like, this is horrible. And I get it. It's a big bowl and it's reverberating off everywhere. It's, it's just going to go away. Well, it reminds me of the, um, I do supermoto out at the McMinnville track and they just popped in all these little condos, like literally across the street. And you have to be kind of like eyes wide open about it, but you know, three, four years from now when you have like the second generation tenants coming through, like how much longer is that racetrack going to be there? Yeah. And that's, a, that's <clears throat> like at a more micro level and you're talking about it slightly larger. And then look at things like, um, I mean, look at, look at where we're building racetracks. Like uh, Chuck Walla is not a new racetrack, but it's newer and it's even farther out in the desert than That is one Springs of the rem- is. most remote places you could go out there. That's gnarly. But it's thriving. Yeah. Or at least it seems like it's thriving. They're yeah. doing a lot of events. I see a lot of my colleagues out there doing the uh, the racing league there. But with no infrastructure. It's basically... Yeah, it's growing slowly. I mean, they, they have like a permanent bathroom now. So that's, they really? that's cool. And there's like asphalt yeah, for sure. the uh, parking lot. But it's, it's still a lot of temporary buildings. But I think that's their goal is they want to keep building it out. There's an airstrip. So you can, you know, fly your plane in. Yeah. Because, right. you know, that's how we're rolling here. Sure. Two enthusiast Un- podcast. Unload the bikes from the airplane. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, well, you, you leave the bike there. That's they ah. actually There actually are a lot of people with toy haulers that, that leave their, their stuff just there. And you can just pay like a storage fee or whatever. It's like the one thing they, they have a lot of is it's land. Yeah. And hopefully some sort of weird life flight thing. It's like RRP out here, two hours away. Nearest hospital is a far away yeah. thing. That's a legitimate concern. Yeah. ORP is a rad track, but you get hurt there. It's not necessarily the best situation. So the life flight thing and you buy, what is it that you can do this where you pay 35 bucks a year? Oh, it's such and a scam. You, well, I don't, I, is it? I, I don't know. I mean, Depends least, on how extreme me, you are. I, I, had a, I actually <clears> had this entire conversation with my healthcare provider because I wanted to know exactly because I, I would like to go out there and after breaking my collarbone in Germany, I'm more aware of getting yeah. hurt in the middle of nowhere now. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, my insurance would totally cover it. So I don't know what their pitch is to maybe, I mean, obviously all health insurances are a little different, but it seems like such a scam. I don't know. I'd hate to give bad advice and be like, Oh, don't sign up for that. And like, you're totally SOL. But I think if you spent a lot of time out there and then you also did a lot of, um, uh, road riding out in Eastern Oregon, which I do, I can imagine maybe, you know, the 35 bucks a year it would wash out, but I see what you're saying. Sure. But that's an, that's a thing with some of these tracks that are remote. Whereas PIR, sure. right sure. here, you've got multiple different places that can take care of you quickly. It's uh, something to consider. And the same goes for that Texas World Speedway. It's right there in a city area. And there's kind of like an <clears> exponential <throat> thing with like track injuries where like I think there's like a certain threshold where it's like, oh, yeah, you broke an arm or whatever. You can sit yeah, in a car sure. for a couple hours and do it. And then it just like starts escalating quickly. Like, oh, yeah, you broke like everything bone in your back. Yeah, okay, we got to get you going. Yeah, sure. In a helicopter ASAP. So maybe, yeah, err on the side of caution. Yeah. Yeah. But All right. No, I think we covered the track thing, unless you had some other, like, is there any anecdotes from Europe, from, from Australia, from other areas where the tracks seem to be more vibrant and or thriving? Uh, is it mainly because there, there's more of a culture of road racing or circuit racing? I think, I mean, it's interesting when you look at Europe and, and abroad, like, I feel like they've, they've built all the tracks they're going to build, but then like immediately comes to mind is this, this circuit of Wales that they're trying to build, which seems like its own kind of like pyramids pyramid scheme scam the circuit of whales yeah hmm 
So um, they technically, so the Circuit of Wales technically has the contract for the British Grand Prix right now. Huh. But they don't have, they uh, don't have a racetrack. So then Donington was going to host it, but then, or yeah. And then like things weren't quite working out for Donington. So then they ended up going to Silverstone. It's a huge, it's a huge mess for, for our, our British friends. But you know that's one of the few tracks I can think of that's that's a new build other than than Coda. But it's another one of those tracks that's relying a lot on um, government money to fund it. Uh, and so there's a lot of promises of what kind of economic development that's going to bring into the area. Yeah. And that that really is like the buzz right now. It's like how much how much money are you going to bring in? Because it's one of the things like well if we're going to spend you know a hundred million dollars to to bring a racetrack to to Austin, but it's going to bring in you know fifty million every year in, in revenue to the Austin city limits, well, that's not a bad investment. I don't know if that necessarily is works out the way people think it will. You know that's kind of some fuzzy numbers. How are you going to really define yeah, sure. all that out? But I mean for the most part like. Yeah, you don't see a lot of new tracks getting built. And I think that's for the reason, because it is it is like a business where you can only have so many and it eventually reaches an equilibrium where it's like, okay, well, we can have one here, we can have one here, but we can't have one in the middle because yeah, that's sure. just the three's too many. Yeah. And we kind of saw that with the USGPs. Three USGPs was probably a little too much for, for MotoGP and now we just have one. So maybe that'll balance out. Maybe we'll see rounds at Laguna Seca again. Maybe we'll see one at Indy, but I think we're more or less at our equilibrium here in the US, at least for the time being, unless... Motorcycle racing gets really popular all of a sudden. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, that, that pretty much kills the subject for me. Right on. Um, another question we got was from uh, someone that was asking about race ABS. So they were kind of confused as to, well, you figure ABS, it either is works or it doesn't. Why would there be a race ABS setting? So in uh, Ducati land, uh, when you put an into that, race. That's, that's one drink if you're keeping up on the drinking right. game. That's one shot. So if you're in Ducati land, race ABS uh, is, it d- defaults to just front. Like you're only having ABS uh, active on. You can lock it up in the rear. Yeah, the rear all day long. I think the KTMs, at least some of the KTMs, they call that supermoto ABS. Ah, uh, yeah. It's yeah. probably a good way. That was probably a lawyer said, hey, that would be a good way to say no, that. I think that's a marketing guy. Uh, I think that was a marketing like, oh, let's call it supermoto. That yeah. sounds way cooler. Yeah, especially with KTM. Right? Yeah. Could, they be, could it be like Kentucky Trail Monkey mode? Like, that's what I want. I think they're trying to get away from that with the street line. That's oh, the yeah, thing. Sure. So they went supermoto. Because it's like, it's still kind of, eh, it's like a dirt bike kind of maybe, but. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and then also it's, it uh, interferes less or it takes more to get it to, to activate. And, and uh, again, the person was understandably wondering like how, why, what would that be like? Or why, how can you feel that? Or what would be the, 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 the good of that? And it's tough unless you've, tuck the front of a motorcycle and then been able to continually go around the, the corner and somehow some way not crash. It's a tough thing to try and get people to understand that that can happen, that you could, you could get it to, to basically start going past its point of adhesion, but not all the way. And you're pushing it so hard and you're still make the, the corner. And these ABS settings are so gnarly that they're able to, to kind of get that slip angle just enough to where, Given the the tires are hot enough and the um, the chassis is set up well enough, and you are putting yourself in the right center of gravity and whatever all the all the moons have aligned to be perfect, that if you grab the brake, it'll still allow you to go forward. I've never tested this, so I don't know. I've never actually gotten a bike and just gone ham fist and tried to on any one of the bikes that have this setting. But I'm quite sure that that's where the uh, the limit is and that it, that's changed completely to come from a street bike setting where 
even the slightest bit of, of wetness on the ground or whatnot might induce the, the, the ABS to start controlling it. Right. I mean, do you have any idea what the sampling rate is on the, on the ABS no. systems? Like, no. It's a lot. A sure. lot per second? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's interesting for, for me. So, so my Hyper is one of the first bikes I've had that had uh, ABS on it. It has a race ABS, and then it has two other settings. And you can see the intervention, like uh, ABS 1 or ABS 3, I think it is. You know, it locks or it will do its anti-locking little thing pretty quick, especially out here with our rainy, leafy roads in the fall. Yeah, sure. And then, you know, setting two, it's a little bit better. And then ra- setting one is race. And that's, you know, a lot of fun because you can lock up the rear and then you can turn it off. But it's been interesting to see the progression of those systems. As I remember going around uh, Thunder Hill on the RSV4 and just, just, I was like late to get out to the session. So I just hopped on the bike and went didn't have a lot of time to to set up the electronics the way I wanted to. So I'm going into turn, I don't even know the turn now, turn nine or whatever it is, the the final right hand, double double right hand onto the straight. And it's a little bit of a, a high braking zone to, to when you get into it. And I remember grabbing the front brake and you feel it start going you're like, ah, that's pretty cool. But traditional braking or traditional ABS worked better up and down. It's not yeah, like it sure. had a system where it was tied into and it knew when you were leaning. Yeah, literally no, never. And now that's all changed with the the cornering ABS from from Bosch. And I think Continental's actually coming out with one now, or already has. And there's probably a, a couple other brands, but Bosch has really soaked up the space the most with um, their system. They actually call it the uh, Bosch MSC Motorcycle Stability Control. I think. Um, but it's feeding off of the inertial measurement unit that the manufacturer provides. No, that's, that's, that's a Bosch IMU. Got it. And that's why you see some bikes will have the IMU, but it only affects the ABS. And then you see yeah. other bikes that have the IMU, and it's traction percolating control. into traction control, yeah. launch control, wheelie control, self-control, you know, everything. <laughs> um, but it, it, even, even watching that, that's been a progression because – one of the things of note coming out of ICMA was the uh, 1299 Superleger. Drink again. But it has... Ducati 1299 Superleger. <laughs> there it is. Thanks. <laughs> to make it official, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but it had... Uh, one of the things that at least they, they made a point to talk about was how the corner and ABS now had a race setting because the people at Bosch and, and, and manufacturers in general are very cautious to say, you know, you can take a... Um, well, the KTM 1290 Superventure was the first street bike to get equipped with an IMU. You can take a Superventure, go through a turn, grab the front brake as hard as you want, and it won't lock up the rear and you won't tuck the front. It'll do the math and it'll slip the front wheel and you'll kind of, I don't know, math happens. But they were very cautious to say, like, this isn't something that you can then take to the racetrack because it's just... The algorithm is not there. Yeah. The, that was why I was asking about the sampling rate. The sampling rate isn't high enough. Or there sure. was a technical limitation that just said, you know, when you get to the racetrack and you start doing triple digit speeds or you start hitting those those thresholds, and, and I assume the, the tire compound has a, a thing to do with this as well. Sure. You get stickier tires. Sure. Um, you know, it's not going to be able to save your butt there. So it's not like you can just be a cheater and just you know, gas it full throttle out of the corner and then full brake going into the corner and it'll trail brake all the way in for you. But that's kind of where the Superleggera is now because they were saying, you know, we've adapted our algorithm. I don't know if there's any technical changes on the IMU or if there's any technical changes on the uh, the ABS sensors to, to make that, that difference. It would actually probably be a good question to to fire over to Bologna. But it is interesting to see that they've made that next step where it's like, yeah, we, we expect this to be something on the racetrack that 
you know, be kind of a cheater. Be kind of cool. Yeah, sure. How do you feel about that as a purist? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really care that much for it. I don't, I don't, I like, I like just straight lever to fluid to brake pads, right? I'm fine with that. But it is fun to be able to, to ride some of these things and have that, there's that little bit of knowledge that you've got. It's a safety thing. A little, it's more for the road on the racetrack. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So when I'm on the road, I've been driving around this ancient van with no ABS, no, I mean, shoot, it, it has a pull choke. So I, I've been in this really analog thing with a carburetor and a, and, and no power steering. And there's been a couple of times where I have locked that freaking thing up and almost gotten into a Portland driver that's being stupid of more than once. And it's been never like, seen that happen. Never yeah. seen a bad Portland driver. No, the slow, really, really slow people that Just, actually put their brakes on for yellow lights. It's amazing. When they stop for your stop sign and then wave you on. Yeah, like, oh my gosh, go. right? So that's been a couple of times where I'm like, okay, that's where I like ABS. So when I get in a sure. sedan that has sure. it all day long, I love it. And then, but at the same time, I, uh, my Multistrada 1100, which is more analog, I'm fine with it. I, you know, if you get down the road, it's cold. TKC 80s, leaves, you just kind of have to ease into it. But it would be interesting to be in the same scenario with a, a new Multistrada, which I haven't had in a while. Um, but off-road, it's great. That's one thing that a lot of people are, oh, you got to turn all that crap off. No, I don't. I leave it on. The rear brake thing is a little bit disconcerting, for sure. You, you turn the rear brake off. If I can. Yeah. On any one of these things, I, I like to be able to just control that because most of the time I can. But the front, I just leave it all on and I can test it all day long. I have no issue with it. Uh, Terra Corsa, that, you know, the, the Panigale with the dirt tires and all that. Yeah, leave it on. Sure. And even with those tires, it probably the algorithms were all screwed up, but it still functioned. And it was, it was helpful. Uh, more than once you could feel it come on okay all right i've done that so it, it, it's horses of courses depending on where you're at put it on my 848 uh i don't i don't know i'd have to get to test it at the limit the only time i've ever tested abs at the limit was on a multistrada 1200 in 2010 before they came out with the updated um algorithm they had it was it would intrude really easily on early bikes and it ended up being a i can't remember if it was a recall or a service bulletin where they you had to get it reflashed so that it was more normal but that thing would trigger at any time and i was on um road america in elkhart lake wisconsin which is gnarly it's a big fast track and uh threshold breaking down into a couple of corners feeling it come on uh, on the front brake was a was a trip, but it worked really well, and I liked it at that time. And then same thing goes for the trash control on the way out of corners. I could feel it. It was very sensitive at the time, but it worked, and it kept me from being on my air. So I was sold on it at that time. Absolutely, that was I was. It was clear that that is the way you should have a bike, no doubt. But um, I I don't I can take I can take it or leave it. I'll say that. Okay, fair enough. I'm not gonna make you like commit to it right now. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's about all we have. Do you want to go to questions? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So if you guys have any questions from the audience, we got a microphone and we'll try to answer it as best as we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you do. No, no, you're going to shy away. Uh, so, well, what's your name? What's your name, son? My name is Christian Hansen. Uh, so you guys were talking about tracks and, and whether their survivability in this day and age in our society is still, I don't know, see if it's going to last. Um, I've heard rumors a couple of times that tracks stop kind of renting out to the public. Um, 
and have gone commercial for like video shoots for cars. Mm-hmm. What's the reality with that? I mean, is that a yeah, I mean, that's that's okay. interesting you bring that up because that's how Coda got launched. Uh, originally, I think they they were going to do track days the first year, and but the track cost was something insane, and they ended up only doing like one day or or, or maybe two, but it was it was significant. It, it was like 50000 to well, that, rent the track as opposed to like PIR, which is, I don't know, not the, anywhere near that. And that's the thing, yeah, it was 30, 50 grand, and that's their focus. They're trying to get, they wanted to be that 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 filming track you know they're looking at uh i think um cadillac did a couple commercials there uh, you know they're looking for big car oems that have these huge inflated budgets for shooting videos and you know obviously you know circuit america's when it first came out was a beautiful track they painted everything stars and stripes you know if you wanted to launch an american right. sports sedan that's a great place to do it right um and now we're seeing more and more track days there so i think that's interesting but I don't know, you know, without looking at the books and with looking at the dynamics of it all, truthfully, what the business breakdown is. But there is good business in that. Um, and proximity is key, though. So uh, Willow Springs, for Willow, Willow sure, Springs is the one that I was thinking of. They sure. they yeah. keep yeah. the the streets of Willow because the and and there's a couple things going. On. It's proximity to to the. A lot of marketing and well, Los Angeles. Los Angeles LA. has a huge fleet. Uh, I mean, I've been I've been to the warehouses. There's huge fleets of of cars and bikes that are purely for video shoots and movies and just feeding off that Hollywood teat, as it were, because it's just that's that's where it is. And they want the product placement. They know if you know, like I've been to the BMW warehouse. Like it's just car after car after car and every single color you could want. And they've got a full little tech shop. They can do repairs. Because they know, like, hey, if our M3 is in, you know, this movie, even if it's just a cameo, you know, thousands and thousands of people are going to see it. And that's just free marketing. You know, they, you know, some sometimes companies pay for that, right? Um, and it's the same thing with, with racetracks. You know, locations is huge. I'm sure um, that's that's definitely the case for Willow. But I'm sure there's some tracks back east that are closer to uh, the eastern seaboard OEMs and things that are out there. Like, I know... Um, like this box just came from Michelin. I was going to show you guys the new Power RS tire uh, after the show because it doesn't come out till January. But they're based in South Carolina, so you know you got to be looking at them. They're probably going to Barber all the time, or or you know Road Atlanta or and somewhere. Porsche uh, uses Barber pretty well yeah. because Barber, yeah. but it's pretty. And then Willow Springs, the the views you can get there, different corner angles, and whatnot. Think about PIR. We're around some of the most gnarly marketing agencies, right? What is the big one that's here in town? There's a Exactly. So you've got Weidman Kennedy, but they might more bend towards product, not necessarily car or whatever, but you're still here and everybody always wets down uh, roads to make it look cool. So you'd think it'd be all right, but you go on PIR, there's not too many really nice areas of PIR. You you mentioned that, but it's funny because I just got the press photos the other day for the Kawasaki Ninja ZX-10 Double R. And that was all the track photos are PIR. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's take great. a look. You can start picking it out. And you're like, ah, that's I, turn I nine. That's turn four. Yeah. That is yeah. a trip. Yeah. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. I, I didn't know it until I saw the photos. And I was like, hey, that looks familiar. That's interesting. So, well, then you know, there it goes. Right. It, someone's figuring it out. But again, it was probably one of those things where it's like, how much does it cost us? Like Thunder Hill was probably booked. Yeah. Sure. You, know, you see Thunder Hill a lot. Um, if you look at the Yamaha R6 video, you see a lot of Thunder Hill shots. You see some Miller in there. I don't know if they go anywhere else. Oh, there might have been like a barber or something like that. But yeah, Miller for there's sure. There's kind of like some tracks that seem to be higher on the hit list than others. And one of them you don't see is Laguna for for reasons that are probably too obvious to state. So there's there's definitely that side of the business, uh, the business side of it, that 
that you have to take into consideration and and you know it's not just enthusiasts that are that are using it and truthfully the that b2b business that they're doing is going to be a lot more profitable because uh, what i was going to say is it, are they making more money they've got to be right? right i mean I, I was trying to remember what the budget was maybe you know when audi shot the um oh what bike was it Oh, it wasn't a bike. No, it was, their, it was one of their cars, but they were going up Pikes Peak. But it was during, oh yeah, right around the Pikes Peak oh, hill yeah. climb race. Sure. And I mean, they they bought the mountain for like a weekend. That can't wow. be cheap. You know, I was I, w- I want to say the budget was like a million or something like that. You know, just a ridiculous amount of money. But it's Audi money. Right. You know, how many cars is that? You know, that's like ten what S sixes or whatever. Nothing. It's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. That's like a that's a Friday. <laughs> so. No, you you laugh, but that was one thing we were told when uh, Audi purchased Ducati, and they're like, "This is a day of running for Audi, like a day. That's it. That's this. Let's buy Ducati. That's fine, right? Whatever." So Ferdinand was is that was that his name? Ferdinand Pike was that the guy? He was like, "Meh, let's just make that happen, right?" Was it a billion dollars, something like that? Yeah. So that's an unreal thing to think of. So yeah, true fuck you money, right? Oh yeah, but it's just, it's just a different level. And it's the same with Hollywood. I mean, there's a reason, like you see, these budgets for movies are like hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's because they're they're spending it. So, all right, thank you, Christian. I yeah. appreciate that. Thanks, fellas. You bet. Hi. <laughs> um, so, actually, a serious question: uh, Do you have any speculation as to if there's going to be a V4 drink Ducati superbike? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely the talk for for um, what year is it next year? Twenty seven for twenty eighteen. There's there's a lot of talk about that. I think Claudio has denied that rumor, but when I was at World Ducati Week, you know, talking to people, that was the scuttlebutt. Um, it's of course going to be speculation. It's of course it's going to be rumored. The Panigale is definitely due for an update. Um, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I I think I don't know how far I want I want to get down onto the speculation side of it, but just think of it from a business point of view, right? How many years does it take to build uh, and design a motorcycle? You know, three, two, three years. It kind of depends. You look at the 1299 Superleggera Project 1408. So that project started in 2014. And that's just, hey, we're going to take a bike. We already kind of built one of these before. We're just going to put the same engine in and kind of do some stuff. And then we're going to make some carbon. And like, there's not as much, I'm not going to try and diminish how much technical involvement there is there, but that's not a ground up new new design. You're building off something you already have. And that took them two years to, to get to market. So think about how long it takes to build a whole new platform and your Ducati's, you know, two, three years ago saying, okay, Panigale is going to be replaced in, you know, year X, let's say it's 2018. What are we going to build? Well, at that point in time, you know, the, the Panigale wasn't doing so hot in world superbike racing. And we didn't, we don't really have a lot of it racing in national series and British superbike a little bit, but that's, kind of its own special thing just the way the rules are set up there um but you know you have to wonder if they were sitting in bologna going like i don't know if we should build another v twin motorcycle maybe a v4 makes a lot of sense we already raced one in moto gp and you see them just coming out with a super bike that has a lot of moto gp derived technology and and components so i think you can make some some inference there but um my dealings with the factory and and, and people there it's also very much a culture of we will look at everything and then we'll start paring down ideas so was an inline four engine on the you know the 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 table when they were you know conferencing it out probably did it last there very long probably not but i think a v4 is certainly within within the realm of possibility i would expect to see a v4 i hear a lot of people talking about a v4 
Um, I don't know what that just did to your Panigale sales here, but, you know, we'll see. Time will tell, as I like to say. Quentin, do you have anything to add to this? No, the question would be is would people, you know, the, the, the Desmond Sedici was adopted quickly. I mean, people fell in love with that thing. It sounds it's all right. wicked, right? It's right. It's yeah, right. so it sounds wicked. It wasn't as good as a 1098R by like a long shot. If you went and you took both oh, the yeah, track, yeah, yeah, yeah. it wasn't we even see, close. We saw lots of those tests, and it's the right? same with the Super Legere. Yeah, well... I mean, Super Legere did Desmond Sedici. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Super Legere yeah. just absolutely just annihilates it. It's like not a even wrecking close. ball. It's, it's like a bad Miley Cyrus video. So, yeah, right. I'm warming up slow tonight. Yeah, well, yeah, right. It's been uh, a long day. Sure. So that for me, I think will a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're gonna ruin the, you're gonna ruin the all the Ducatista. They're gonna just and it's like you know what? They just made a bike for the past few years that didn't have a steel trellis frame. I think it did okay. But that's a question. Like, did a lot of people stray away from it? Like, I still have an A48 for a reason, right? So I like that feeling. That's for me. That's what I like. Wait, is, that, is that the reason you you keep that bike? Is because it's got a trellis frame, or you just like an A48 because it works well? It works well, and I, I like the feeling of it. And I, when I've ridden the Panigale series on track, I've enjoyed it, but it doesn't have that same thing. And it might be the engine as well. It could be the combo. The fact that the high revving Super Quadro engine isn't quite my cup of tea but you ride a 1299 and well, that's it, the thing i was gonna say the 1199 was definitely yeah. a very different engine characteristic to the 1299 but and I think, the 1299 has that punch back it has yeah. that that squirt from that you don't have to rev the crap out of it it's way more fun to ride for me but most people look at it as a uh, like overkill they're like why would i need uh, do, do i need a 2399 next what's the deal so that's been a tough one for us to say hey listen i know it's bigger and it's supposed to have more power and all that but it's really it's more usable and the 1199 didn't necessarily have that and it was kind of tough to ride for those of us who were into frankly lazy uh, ducati's rad because you can be lazy you can just just keep the just keep the engine in the low in the rev range and pour on the throttle pre-apex and get out and that would be the thing would a v4 give you all the feelings and vibes but it's not a v-twin and ducati's been v-twin for so long doesn't matter that's what i was saying relative to the trellis frame or dry clutch these things that they have to have and the desmo part of it the sacred cows yeah the, 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 so those are the sacred cows well, or were uh the, tre the trellis frame the desmo dramic valve actuation which i think pretty much kind of has to they've just built so much on it and they're good at it so that it's hideously complex though relative to some of the other stuff so that's the question is it, is that what's driving the cost of these things is all the extra stuff they have to do to make that uh, that would be what I'd be interested in when they when they build out uh, the next thing whatever that is if it's V4 there's a lot of cost involved there there's a reason why Honda went away from a V4 and went to an inline 4 and I guarantee you it was bean counters in the late uh, 90s that said hey we, you know if we're going to go this we might as well just keep making our C we have good we have the CBRs already let's just focus on those because these the, the the RC45 and RC30 lineage the RVF lineage it's way more complicated to make two cylinder heads have two banks of cams all the extra stuff that it takes whereas I got this one four cylinder in line with two cams I'm yeah, done how's that working out for them Al yeah sure good point but at know, the I, time I bet the the beans counted right oh for sure for sure. I think a bitchin' bike's a bitchin' bike at the end of the day. Um, if if whatever bike Ducati comes out with next, if it's bitchin', just to keep using that word, people are going to buy it. And yeah, if sure. it's not, then it's going to be a 999. Uh, it's as simple as that. Yeah. But... Um, I don't think they have to... I don't think a V-twin is absolute any longer. I, don't, I just don't think yeah. it is. I, I will add, it is of note that 
uh, Dorna now runs World Superbike, whereas before, Dorna being a Spanish company, whereas before it was Infront Media, which was an Italian company. And if you want to go back to the days of when World Superbike was called a Ducati Cup, it was because there was that Italian connection. And we will absolutely make, you know, these concessions to you for your, you know, two-cylinder engine platform. And of course, because it's, you know, that's just what we do. And maybe that's not the case as much. And maybe there's some private conversations that are going like, hey, guys, you know, we're just going to call it, you know, 1,000 cc's and done. So what do you want to do? And if you look at the... um Chaz Davis's bike, holy crap. You can't get any further from a production machine. I mean, it's really gnarly. I got to see one of those up close when, yeah. uh, when I, I can't remember what happened. It was Giuliano crashed or something, and I happened to be in Laguna Seca at, at the turn where they were putting it up on the truck, and I'm looking at it, and I know what I'm looking at. So I'm like, holy crap, there's nothing. The engine cases, that's it. That was the only thing that was that was came out of the factory right the rest of it the swing arm seeing the like a two inch freaking oh, yeah. weldment Extension. right yeah. in the center of the swing arm and that already has the like the longest wheelbase in the business and they're adding more and it's like wow they've had to do a lot to make that do its thing and that's kind of gnarly well so. that's going to be the thing too when when you know let's say this bike comes out this v4 comes out and people are gonna be like well you know look at world super like do we really need one because chaz chaz had a really strong yeah, second sure. half of the season if you some things had gone better for him in the beginning of the season maybe could have been the world champion maybe i don't i might take that back but he's definitely one of the few people that he, could contend could with close. Johnny, Johnny Ray. he could have been close he would have been closer sure and but you that can make that argument be, like oh does it really need to be changed it's like well Again, I go back to the development years. It's like, well, they weren't at that level two, three years ago when they started planning this bike. So you're kind of at the mercy of that. But you know, Claudio's a crafty guy, man. And I don't put anything past him. I think he can. He's going to put out a cool bike. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> hi. Uh, hi, my name is Antonio. I got a question for you about um, the Valencia test. Um, so you talked about that face that uh, Lorenzo and Stoner made. Uh, when they saw the, the fast lap by uh, Vinales. So I wondered, when I saw that, I wondered, gee, I wonder what face uh, Rossi is making. And he made oh. me think about <laughs> how that, uh, you know, speculating here, if if Maverick uh, next season, if he starts winning, uh, doing well, maybe doing better than Rossi early on, I wonder how that relationship is going to go. It's making me think a little bit about the relationship between Danny and Marquez. When Marquez came in, Danny was the senior rider, but very obviously that changed. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's there's a few things there, right? I think we have some history teaches us a lesson of what to expect if if Maverick is starts to become faster than Valentino. We saw that with Jorge. Um and you have to understand too, in a larger sense, there is a power struggle inside the MotoGP paddock, and it's this Italian versus uh, or Italy versus Spain kind of power struggle. It's just Rossi versus Marquez uh, power struggle of, of, you know, there, there is definitely influence that is wielded by, by these athletes inside the paddock. And and that percolates through everything. So for Rossi to not be the top dog or not to be the top person in the team, you know, I think that's part of the reason we saw 
Lorenzo maybe pushed out is might be the wrong phrase to use for it, but that's that's how it certainly looks to some degree. Hey, well, that, if you call Marquez Marquez, you got to call Lorenzo Lorenzo. I can't do it. I just I'm just saying, <laughs> right? Don't fake the funk, man. It's Lorenzo, right? Sorry, sorry, dude. I'm well, so sorry, but I had well, to do. Well, one's Catalan, the other's not. That's oh, is not, that true? Yeah. Is that right? Is, can you verify that? Is that is there a different? Is it all with the th uh, with z's? Well, it's, it's called the Catalan list, right? That's great. Obviously. I, yeah, no, but that's really cool to learn because I didn't know that. I took Theta. French, so I'm just spitballing. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but with, I lost my train of thought. But yeah, absolutely. With If, if Maverick becomes faster than Valentino, I think you're going to see a lot more friction in that in that garage. Uh, do you don't think that, that Valentino at this point has, I mean... We all know there's a chance he's capable. Shoot, he showed it. He showed it from the past two years. He's still capable of potentially winning a championship. But don't you think maybe there's a bit of him that said, "Okay, my legacy better not be to end this shitty because he had that last year was horrible." All of us were like, even those of us who are diehard Rossi fans are like, "Dude, that was really bad. You should have, you should have played that better." Well, so it was maybe like an he'll awkward take, Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so now, right, cooking the turkey. It's like uh, maybe you need to be a little bit cooler with this kid because um, yeah, I think Rossi's in it to win it, and I think that's that's where his motivation is. I think he's looking for for championship number ten, and it's get out of my way so I can do it. And there's there is some motivation. I'm not saying it exists, but there is at least an understanding that. Yamaha benefits greatly if Rossi wins a championship versus MotoGP does. MotoGP for sure, but you know you have to think long term. What what is Rossi going to be doing in like two three years time? He's going to be a brand ambassador for Yamaha now. Do you want him um, being a ten time world champion, or do you want him being a nine time world champion? And do you want him retiring on that tenth world championship? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of marketing dollars involved in that. Yeah. Um, that's all I saw last year when he was fighting. I was like, man, that would be, for those of us who are in it, like he could probably, that yeah. would be the swan song. You're set. Like it yeah. would be fine. There's a stamp. He's the best. You'll always be the best done. And then he'd be gone. But he didn't, right? And now, but he's still showing that he's rad beyond belief, especially this year. So if he can keep in it, but I just think ugh, yeah. you'd have to be pragmatic about it and say, hey, this person's obviously going to be motivated and I don't want him to crash me out like uh, Marquez style, yeah. Marquez style, right? Marquez. All right. right. Get in there. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I just remembered the shittiest interview I ever had was with Marco Melandri. And it was right after he was still in MotoGP, but he was having all that friction with Aprilia. And he said something that was really salient. And he was like, you know, all this is fake. All these friendships, all these things. This It was still when um, Valentino and uh, Mark were, were, were buddies. And he was talking about, you know, like, this is all for show. This is all for the fans. This No one in this paddock is, is truly friends with anyone else. And... I've heard other writers make mention of some of similar feelings. And, and the way it was iterated to me was that it's just such a competitive landscape. Everyone's there trying to get a factory seat, trying to get onto the next bike, trying to be with the right team, you know, comparatively to like, say, World Superbike, where it was a little bit more collegial. You know, everyone just kind of had their thing. You could kind of win, you know, on a Honda or a Yamaha or a Ducati. Like everyone had like a chance, whereas MotoGP was just ultra, ultra competitive. And then so that, that kind of bred this kind of animosity from the riders. And you hear things like everyone kind of likes Andrea Davizioso because Andrea Davizioso is a really cool guy. And a lot of people like Danny because Danny's a really down-to-earth guy. But don't believe for a second that they wouldn't sell the guy next to him down the river if it meant that they could go one more place up on the podium or one more place up on the standings. And so, you know, are, are, are Maverick and Valentino really friends? Or are they just colleagues that are getting along right now? Um, and I think it's probably the latter. 
Uh, you, you made mention about when when Marquez came into the the Repsol Honda team and Danny was the number one rider. I don't think there was any doubt in anyone's mind on either side of that garage who was going to be the number one rider when Mark showed up. Um, you know, Danny's been their golden goose for a long time, but the pipeline to bring Mark all the way through from Moto Three up into the team had been established a long time ago, and that comes back to that power play that's kind of going on in the GP paddock, where you know. Marquez is like, he's the golden goose, right? And he's probably one of the greatest racers we've seen for for decades to come. He's still got a lot of career you know, left in him to, to see how that plays out. But you can't deny that talent. Um, even coming through in Moto3 and Moto2, you can't deny that talent. Um, and so I don't think I don't think for, for Danny having him coming, it was the same relationship as, say, Maverick coming into Valentino. I think Valentino still thinks he can win. Not to say that Danny doesn't think he can't win, but I think he realizes where the pecking order is and where the money is and, and where the support is coming from and who's Honda's guy and who's Yamaha's guy. So um, different situations. Well, one thing that I like, though, is that um, uh, the potential for Maverick to take championships away from both Marquez and Lorenzo so that Rossi still stays up high, right? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, keep You're keep such a fanboy. Yeah, it's good, right? Oh totally. So keep keep you go ahead and win a few of them, right? Take them away because then Marquez will crash trying to keep up with you, all right? And that'll be gnarly, and it could be, or it'll show Mark Marquez's true genius because he is. I mean, the little shit. He's such a little shit, but he's so rad, and you gotta love it. So if he continues to, if he beats up on him, he might beat him down, you know. Germanow style, and then Maverick will go go the way, uh, or it might help play into Rossi's. Oh, so many different things can go on. I love well, it. That's what next season is going to be so good. Like sure. there's so many little storylines you can see kind of manifesting. But we'll have to wait and see which which ones they are. But it's going to be a good season for sure. And it's better than thinking. It's thinking about like in the late '90s when it was like doing. Doing, doing, crivelling, and then doing, 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 right? And I just got a doing helmet, so I'm really stoked, right? So I really, I'm thinking back to that era, but people were bored. Like, you, you'd know who was going to win all the time, and it, people got bored of it. When Rossi came in, and even though you knew he was going to win, he did whatever he had to do to, to make it interesting, and he did for a long time. And that created so many fans, myself included, that, I mean, there's lifetime style. So if we could see now, though, it's way better to not know, to think, hmm, Jorge could be a dark horse here. Like, that would be really interesting, and I would be all about it to see more than one race weekend for Ducati in a, in a season. Like, how many times did they win? They, you know, only got a couple or one or two? Not a lot. And so the, the Yamaha Honda juggernaut has been going on for long enough. Let's get it in going. And if, if he can do that with him and Gigi getting together and making that bike rad, Cool. That'd be good. And if the Suzuki, if Inoni can get up there and mix it up too, I love it. I'd love to see as many as possible. And then hopefully that brings Kawasaki back into the mix, right? And I, hopefully that creates a, a situation where you got more more people and more interest. I think I think Cowie's just they're just happy being in Superbike doing yeah, sure. Just yeah. just wrecking ball everyone. Yeah. Yeah. R R. Double R. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think we're uh I, I think anywhere, we're anywhere. Oh, Graham's got one. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, we got one more after that. Hey guys, um, as technology from GP trickles down, besides the H2R, do you think we'll see winglets on more production bikes in maybe five years' time? I think the the winglet ban really fucked up some shit for Ducati. Yeah, but from a production standpoint, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I I I've fully expected to see winglets popping up on Panigales or whatever new bike they come out with. They put a lot of money into that. Yeah. And I still think what we'll see for the 2017 season, from what I understand, 
it's not like the winglets might be banned, but aerodynamics haven't. So we're going to see very complex ways of getting around that rule. I don't think by a long shot we've seen aerodynamics go away. Um, but Cowie's tried it a few times over the years. So if you think back to early 2000s, the ZX-12R, I think, had little little thingamajigger bobbers. You couldn't really call them winglets. Like yeah, they were doohickeys for sure. Even yeah. like the uh, even the stocks of the mirrors were yeah. sort of slotted. Um, sure. And and a lot of those. Uh, and I remember on the ZX12, it, it had those banshee pointy mirrors. Yeah. And, and I don't sure. know how much that was aesthetics. It, it looked pretty cool, but uh, you could also imagine it cutting through the wind really well. Yeah, and I don't know. It it seems to be there's the complexity of manufacturing, right? So it's adding extra crap that's going to cost, and then. A lot of people look at the danger. Like you brought up the danger of the things. Well, let's just engineer it so that it'll break off. Done. Yeah. Right. So well, I think really the danger, the danger side of it, in, in the GP context, is total BS. Yeah. Total BS. There's too many other things that are sticking out and poking out. And like, I don't know. Like, how about going uh, 200 miles an hour on a motorcycle? Yeah. Right. Well, that's not dangerous sure. it's at all. It's an inherently unstable, inherently dangerous activity. Period. Shut the fuck up about the winglets. Give me a break. So that was the thing, though. A lot of people were were asked about. Does would that transfer to you know? Can you see? Uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration nanny stating these things out of existence, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think, I honestly don't think that we, if we do see them, I don't think they're going to be terribly practical. I think it's going to be a lot of marketing reasons. Yeah. yeah. It takes a lot of speed for those things to work straight up. Yeah. On a MotoGP bike, the, the times when that's working, I think is, it's, it's fast, right? So, you know, going around a corner at mock speed, uh, Vignale style is a, a lot different than, even those of us that club race out at PIR, I'm sure it could have an effect, but uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. Good question. Thank you. Thank Keep you. it up. All right. So that's that. I think we should. I think we should wrap that up. Yeah. That was one thing about that bike. Didn't have a kickstand. Mm. 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 None of my race bikes do. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Good talks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Later. All right. All right, our good our good friend from Ace Motorcycle Towing, Portland's best motorcycle towing. <laughs> Plug, nicely done. <laughs> what is the average wing velocity of an unladen swallow? Oh, it's unladen. <laughs> yeah, oh. I only know laden. Yeah. I'm fully laden swallows. That's the only ones I know, right? You can't I, pun that. <laughs> no, I can't. I don't want to touch okay. anything. It's so, a swallow in it. This is kind of a.